a day at home and went into Chile, did a crusade in Chile. Uh, pastors came over from Argentina. Uh, Nigel Brown came down, joined me. Uh, we uh, uh, had a great time. Uh, beings, we were there and had all the days off. We did a little mini conference. We did seminars in the daytime. Saw some 300 people saved there. And I want to tell you, that's just a glimpse of the tremendous thing that God is doing in all our fellowship. We ought to give God praise for what he's doing. Amen. Thank God. Hallelujah. Oh, thank God. Praise God. Hallelujah. Wonderful Jesus. Besides that, other men, I'm getting constant reports of other men. They're traveling all over the world preaching, and I want to tell you, God is glorious at work in our fellowship. I want to preach tonight from the book of Judges, chapter 8. If you have your Bibles, please turn there with me. The book of Judges and chapter 8. In the 70s, uh, the Rolling Stones sang a song that was quite uh, popular. It was called Sympathy for the devil. This song depicted and it expressed all that is nasty, rebellious, perverse in human nature. And actually, it epitomized the spirit of anarchy that is at work in the world today. The earth is an arena. In that arena, good and evil are in conflict. In that arena, God and the devil are in conflict. In that arena, there is light and darkness that is constantly in conflict and opposed to each other, and you and I cannot avoid involvement. In the book of Judges, there's a lesson for us. Verse 4 of Judges, chapter 8, a man named Gideon. When Gideon came to the Jordan, he and the 300 men who were with him crossed over exhausted but still in pursuit. Then he said to the men of Succoth, Please, give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted, and I am pursuing Zeba and Zalmana, kings of Midian. And the leaders of Succoth said, Are the ha hands of Zeba and Zalmana now in your hand that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, For this cause, when the Lord has delivered Zeba and Zalmanah into my hand, then I'll tear your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. Then he went up from there to Peniel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Peniel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. So he also spoke to the men of Peniel saying, When I come back in peace, I'll tear down this tower. Now Zeba and Zalmanah were at Karkor, and their armies with them about 15,000 till all who were left to all the army of the people of the east for 120,000 men who drew the sword had fallen. Then Gideon went up by the road of those who dwell in tents on the east of Noba and Japhetha, and he attacked the army while the camp felt secure. When Zeba and Zalmana fled, he pursued them, and he took the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmana, and routed the whole army. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from battle from the ascent of Heres, and he caught a young man of the men of Succoth and interrogated him, and he wrote down for him the leaders of Succoth and his elders, 77 men. Then he came to the men of Succoth and said, Here is Zeb and Zalmanah, 
among uh, about whom you ridicule me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmanah now in your hand, that, that we should give bread to your weary men? And he took the elders of the city and thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them he taught the men of Succoth. Then he tore down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. And he said to Zeba and Zalmanah, What kind of men were they whom you killed at Tabar? So they answered, As you are, so were they. Each one resembled the son of a king. Then he said, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you let them live, I'd not kill you. And he said to Jether, his firstborn, Rise and kill them. But the youth would not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a youth. So Ziba and Zalmanah said, Rise yourself and kill us. For as a man is, so is his strength. So Gideon arose and killed Ziba and Zalmanah and took the crescent ornaments that were on their camel's necks. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, both you and your son and your grandson also, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. I want to talk to you about sympathy for the devil tonight. First of all, I want to deal with you about the myth of neutrality. There is a common mantra that is used by men who are caught in the, uh, in the royals of conflict, and uh, one of the statements is, uh, I'm neutral. I don't want to get involved. Now, generally, these are people who are uh, uh, people who do not want to pay a price for conflict, uh, or more nearly, these are people uh, who they have convictions, uh, but they know if they share those convictions uh, that there's going to be a conflict and there's going to be a battle. And this is a common mantra of many men who are caught in the toils and the royals of conflict. Here's a common, a crucial time. Here in this text, we see that the battle has been, been engaged, but the battle is not fully decided yet. And in Judges 8, verse 6, uh, the leaders of the Succoth said these words, and this is an insight into human personality, are the hands of Zeba and Zalman are now in your hand, that we should give bread to your army. Then he went up there and read spoke to them in the same way, and the men of Peniel answered him as the men of Succoth uh, had answered. Here we find a common trait of human personality, and uh, the trait of human personality uh, is uh, they're actually saying, uh, we're going to see if you win. If you win, then we're going to be on your side. If you don't win, then we're not going to be on your side. In the book of Judges, chapter 5 and verse 23, some of the most potent words written, and uh, the Bible says, uh, Curse Miraz, said the angel of the Lord, Curse you the inhabitants thereof bitterly, uh, because they came not to the help of the Lord, uh, to the help of the Lord uh, against the mighty. I have a book, and the title of this book is actually a stu study on e uh, Nehemiah uh, by a man named Camel, and the title of this book is No Time for Neutrality. He makes a point, and that point is that it's impossible for a genuine Christian to be neutral. Because the elements of spiritual warfare, light and darkness, good and evil, God and the devil, the uh, royals and the uh, turmoil and the currents of conflict, uh, it is impossible as a Christian for you to be neutral uh, because uh, the very fact that there is a conflict forces you to take sides. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11 and verse 23, 
The Bible says that Jesus said, He that is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. It's interesting that President Bush, uh, following the September 11th assault on the Twin Trade Towers uh, and the Pentagon, quoted that very verse, uh, and students said these words to the world, He that is not with us is against us. Now, tonight as we're sitting in this building, there is a myth... And that myth is a myth of neutrality. It is impossible that anyone can be neutral. And anyone that says they're neutral are lying to you. They actually are against you. The devil's not neutral. 1 Peter 5, 8 says, The devil, as a roaring lion, goes about seeking whom he may devour. I saw an African documentary one time that depicted the life of lions. And every single day, a lion gets up with one single thought in mind, and that's to kill and eat. Is that right? This is why... The Apostle Paul, or Peter rather, writes these words and lets us understand this is the nature of the devil. He is not neutral, and he's called in the Bible that old serpent, the devil. Sin is not neutral. In the Bible, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 6, the Apostle Paul says, A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Don't you know that? And he's speaking about sin, and sin is not neutral, but it has a pervasive, it has an invasive, it has an aggressive nature about it. And this is what he's pointing out to us. And added to that, demons are not neutral. In the Gospel of Luke chapter 11, 24, when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, uh, he uh, goes through dry places seeking rest and finding none. He says, I'll return uh, to my house uh, from which I came. And he not only comes in, but he brings with him seven other spirits. Uh, and uh, the last condition of that man is worse than the first. The devil uh, is not neutral. Demons are not neutral. Uh, and besides that, disease is not neutral. Disease, whether it be a cancer, whether it be a virus, whether it be a bacteria, whether it be a staph infection, or whether it be a tumor, disease is not neutral. Disease is aggressive. Can you say amen? When we begin to look at life, lust is not neutral. What was the book they wrote about Bill Clinton entitled On the Make? Lust is not neutral. Rebellion's not neutral. Can you say amen? amen? One pastor was telling me that as a man overseas, and he uh, asked him if he'd received uh, tapes from the Prescott Conference, and he said yes. He said, uh, well, you did listen to them? Well, uh, I listened to a couple of them. And uh, he said, I'm not into all that American infighting. Well, it's because of that American infighting you still have a fellowship. See, our conferences are not love fests. Oh, you're okay. I'm okay. We just, oh, we just love. I want to tell you, the devil's real, folks. Rebellion's real. Rebellion is not neutral. Rebellion is constantly at work. I was talking to one pastor, and he's uh, telling me a little event in life, and he said, you know, uh, uh, it, 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 was a, it would be a wonderful thing, we said uh, at a certain period in the recent past, that when the big three uh, was uh, Thief in the Night and Distant Thunder and the other big three instead of Johnson, Houghton, and Coolidge. 
And then he gave me an interesting little insight. I'd never heard this one before. And he's riding with one of the big three. And uh, the, uh, the boy looks over at him and, uh, uh, and uses a term. And he says to him uh, these words. Uh, he said, uh, when Jesus went to heaven, how many people did he leave in charge? And then he looked over with a demonic and then went on driving. <laughs> dropped a little turd in his way to see what he's going to do with that. And that's how rebellion operates. Rebellion is not neutral. Can you say amen? So when we begin to look at this, uh, the myth of neutrality, uh, actually uh, we, have, uh, uh, we have the statement made, but this is a ploy, and this ploy is a ploy of deception. And what it really is, uh, is people who sympathize uh, with uh, the devil. When we have these men of Succoth, we have these men of Pinuel. They are being asked to join a divine enterprise. And as the invitation is given to them, uh, the battle has not been yet decided. Uh, they refuse to. And what they're actually saying is, let's see if you win. Then we'll join you. And this is what neutrality is. It's impossible as a Christian if you're honest to be neutral. If you say you're neutral, you're lying. This brings me to the call to judge. We live in a moral universe. God rules a moral universe, and justice is the foundation of the universe in which we live. And in Genesis 18:25, Abraham knew that when God is going down to judge Sodom, and he says to the Lord, Will not the God of all the earth do right? The judge of all the earth do right. What he's bringing out to us is the very nature of God, because the nature of God is that uh, he has a moral nature, and he has a moral principle, and in Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, says, Ascribe greatness to our God. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of truth, and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. There's been some interesting quotes in history. One of these was made by Edmund Burke, said, All it takes for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. Another statement was made, and this statement says, A long habit of not thinking a thing wrong gives it a superficial appearance of being right. Time makes more converts than reason. And so this brings us now to the text that we have and the situation at hand, because believers have an obligation to act. Here is Gideon, and Gideon has an obligation, and that obligation is to avenge his brethren. Judges 8, 18 and 19. He said to Zeb and Zalman, What kind of men were they whom you killed at Tabor? So they answered, As you were, uh, as you are, so were they. Each one resembled the son of a king, and he said, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother, as the Lord lives, if you'd let them live, I would not kill you. Now, here he brings us to the reality. Remember, we live in a moral universe. God is a God of justice. God is a righteous God. And this forces us into an arena where life forces us to take sides. Here we have the inhabitants of Succoth. We have the inhabitants of Pinuel. And the real issue about this was they violated covenant. This is a very interesting passage of Scripture in Amos 1.9. 
And I want to share it with you. It says, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre, and for four, that is, for multiplied delinquency, I'll not reverse the punishment of, or revoke my word concerning it. Because they, as middlemen, delivered up a whole Jewish population to Edom and did not seriously remember their brotherly covenant. That's the Amplified Translation. Knox translates that as though bond there were none between brethren. Another translation says, For they broke their treaty with their brother, and still another says, Disregarding a treaty of brotherhood. And another uh, adds this common, uh, comment, That the bonds of covenant cry out. See, covenant is a living thing. Covenant is not simply some dry theological uh, uh, precept, uh, but some of the most pointed language uh, in the Bible uh, has to do with those who break the covenant, uh, and the covenant is spoken of as a living thing uh, that continues on uh, generation after generation uh, of those who are the believers in the living God bring certain responsibilities to them uh, in their actions, uh, and uh, uh, those uh, that are condemned uh, are called covenant breakers uh, and Moses makes a very interesting and poignant picture of this in Exodus 32 26 through 29 listen to these words then Moses stood in the entrance of the camp and said whoever's on the Lord's side come to me and all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him and he said to them thus says the Lord God of Israel let every man put his sword on his side and go in and out from the entrance to entrance throughout the camp and let every man kill his brother every man his companion and every man his neighbor so the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day then Moses said consecrate yourselves today to the Lord that he may bestow on you a blessing this day for every man uh, has opposed his son and his brother now I'm not suggesting today that you go kill people but there is a principle there that you cannot escape and that principle is very well taken and the example is very well set and that is that you cannot simply live in a moral universe as a bond and a brother bond in the kingdom of God with believers in Jesus Christ and take a place of neutrality but there's a call to judge Ezekiel gives us a very pointed picture in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 9, 4 through 6, uh, if I could uh, uh, take the time to read that. said, The Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. To the others, he said in my hearing, Go after him through the city and kill, and do not let your eyes spare, nor have any pity. Utterly slay old and young men, maidens and little children and women, but do not come near anyone who is, has the mark and begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the temple. Here's a tremendous uh, principle that we have. And that principle is that God is serious about covenant. Can you say amen? God is serious about sin. God is serious about rebellion. God is serious about immorality. God is serious about the kingdom. And the Bible says that the church of Jesus Christ is not immune 
from the conflicts uh, in the spirit world. Uh, and the Bible says that we simply cannot be spectators uh, simply watching uh, and uh, sitting on the parapets uh, and saying, too bad. My, 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 those Americans, my, 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 what infighting they have. Uh, well, I want to tell you that because we are, uh, want to fight for what's right, we want to fight for our fellowship, we want to fight for our principle, we want to fight for what we are, uh, my friend, uh, you can call us whatever you want to call, but we have a fellowship uh, because we're willing to fight. First Peter 4.17 says, For the time has come that judgment uh, to begin at the house of God, and if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Paul calls uh, the church to judge. He writes very plainly. Uh, he uh, says that, that we're going to judge angels. Uh, and so we have the ability to judge uh, with our own ranks. Uh, we're commanded to judge prophecy within the church. Uh, we're commanded uh, to judge fornication in the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, we're commanded to judge ourselves. Can you say amen? Uh, we're commanded to judge between uh, brethren. And we're commanded to, to judge rebels. Uh, and uh, so as we begin to uh, lay this out, uh, uh, God calls us to judge, and we cannot escape it because there's a clear-cut call to judge, and God expects you to judge, and he expects you to name apostates. Paul named apostates. Paul said, Hymenius and Alexander, I've delivered them up to the devil. And he says again, Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil. Jesus names people in the book of Revelation. And the Bible is not bashful about coming out front and taking a stand. And if you think you're going to escape this, listen to the rest of my message. Because I want to tell you, God gives us a call to judge. Here are people, Gideon is in a place, Gideon sees his brethren, his brethren, the sons of his mother, the sons of, uh, of that shared the womb, they have been destroyed by these men, and Gideon has a responsibility to judge that, and he does that, and as a matter of fact, the rites of passage to maturity is the ability to judge. In our passage, we have uh, uh, his son. His uh, son's name is Jether. And he says to Jether, rise up and kill Zeba and Zalmanah. I want you to judge them. And the Bible says he could not because he was a youth. And so an inability to judge means that you're immature. And you have no place uh, uh, to be a pastor, most of all. And even in the congregation of the righteous and Zeba and Zalman are strutting their stuff, said, you've got uh, uh, big hair on your chest, you do the job. And he said, I'll just do just that. <laughs> the rites of passage to maturity means that you rise to the responsibility to judge. I want to talk to you for a moment about the benefits uh, of covenant. Remember, we're talking about sympathy for the devil. Here in our text, we need to pay attention. There's a heads up here as we begin to consider this because covenant means something. Psalms 27, 13 says, I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. There's more to the covenant than simply some dry, dead theological stance and some cliches. In the Old Testament, we have two men who are in covenant. You know the story, their names are David and Jonathan, Saul's son. 
David and uh, Jonathan cut covenant. You know the story. Jonathan is slain in battle uh, alongside his father in the battle. And as time rolls on, David says, Is there anyone left of the household of Saul uh, that I may uh, do kindness to? Is there anyone left of Jonathan? They said, Yes, he has a crippled son. His name is Mephibosheth. And to make a long story short, in one act of David who is fulfilling the covenant, because the covenant means something. And in one act of fulfilling the covenant, Mephibosheth is brought from a penniless exile to the king's table, and the lands that were taken from him are restored, and this was done because of the covenant that David cut with Jonathan. You see, the bonds of covenant are very powerful. And when those bonds are violated, then there's something very serious in God's sight. And God does not leave us neutral at that point. And Nehemiah 1.5 says, And I said, I pray, Lord, God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you. Here's Nehemiah, and as Nehemiah is there, he's, he is many generations down from Abraham. But as he's many generations down from Abraham, he reaches back to the God of covenant, and he, as an inheritor of the covenant of Abraham, says, God, remember your covenant because you're the one that keeps it. You empower me because I'm on this mission to establish your testimony. And Nehemiah went in the strength of that tremendous covenant, and God's blessing was upon him. You can read the story because of the benefits of covenant. The Benefits Covenant means that God is working for you. In verse 15 of our text, we find Gideon, and as we find him there, he utters these words, The Lord will deliver my enemies into my hand. Now Gideon had just left a conflict where 120,000 had been slain by 300 men. Now that's God. Can you say amen? But there's 15,000 that are still getting away, and he knows that he has to finish the job because these are the enemies, and he cannot allow them to survive, and he's after them. This is what brings him to Succoth and Peniel because he needs their help to resupply his army to be able to finish the job, and God was with him. That's one of the great statements of the Bible, one of the most thrilling uh, statements of the Bible that says it all, for God was with him. Can you say amen? For God was with him. That's one of the statements I want to hear until I draw my last breath and go to be with Jesus. I want to hear that statement made about me, for God was with him. I remember that means something uh, tonight. Uh, and uh, when God is with us, uh, even the elements uh, work in our behalf. We have the story of uh, Deborah and Barak. Uh, and in Judges 5, verse 20, says they fought from the heavens. Uh, the stars from their courses fought against Sisera. And here is a tremendous statement. Uh, Sisera didn't stand a chance. Uh, he's the general of the Syrian army. He comes down in the valley of Megiddo. Uh, and uh, there in the valley of Megiddo, as the river Kishon is there, God brings a tremendous uh, flood and, 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 uh, and rainstorm. Uh, 
and uh, the chariots uh, begin to mire in the, in the mud, uh, caught in the river, caught in the flood. Uh, and uh, that's why the Bible says uh, that the stars in their courses fought uh, against Israel. He didn't stand a chance because even the elements worked uh, in his behalf. Uh, and uh, not only that, uh, but he runs for his life, uh, runs into a tent uh, of Hebrew who he feels uh, will be his ally uh, and uh, goes to sleep on the floor. And, and uh, Hebrew's wife, uh, Jael, spikes his head to the floor of the tent. What a horrible way to end your life. Uh, you don't stand a chance when you're against God. When God is with you, blessing will transpire. When God is not with you, there's nothing but ruination. And this is not just, uh, just by chance here. The reason this happened to these people is uh, that sister was on the wrong side. Can you say amen? And you can't be neutral in the kingdom of God. Covenant means something tremendous. I want to share with you the words uh, of uh, Psalms 133, 133. It says, Behold... Uh, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It's like the precious oil upon the head running down on the heart, on the beard, and the beard, the beard of Aaron running down on the edge of his garments. Uh, it is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life uh, forevermore. Here we find a beautiful picture, and that picture is the picture of covenant blessing, and that picture of covenant blessing, God says, uh, here's the picture uh, when uh, brethren uh, will honor the covenant uh, and, uh, reverend, uh, and reverence that covenant. Uh, it's like the picture when Aaron was anointed, uh, the oil ran down from his head, uh, down to his beard, down onto his garment, down into his shoes, down onto the ground, because there's a gracious anointing uh, that comes uh, when God releases uh, covenant blessing uh, upon our lives. Here's a picture of the glorious grace and favor of God. Here's a picture of those uh, who will take a stand uh, for God. Now blessings uh, are energized uh, and experienced uh, by covenant. Exodus 34, 6 and 7 says, And the Lord passed before him, and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. And he said, Behold, I make a covenant before all your people. I do marvels such as not have been done in all the earth nor in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. There is always a tremendous blessing that's released. These are the promises of God. And there's always a culmination of this in, in, in dominion. From the hand of Midian. One thing that happens when you begin to take a stand against ungodliness. When you begin to take a stand against sin, when you begin to stand up and call uh, unrighteousness what it is, when you begin to stand up and call rebellion what it is, something happens, uh, and that is a dominion begins to be released in your life, uh, and that dominion always culminates uh, in a leadership position uh, when you take that position. When we judge rebellion, we actually put a guard on our own souls. What a tremendous thought. When we judge rebellion, we put a guard on our own souls uh, and uh, God works in our behalf uh, and it always uh, ends uh, in dominion 
in your ministry, in your hand. I know many, many pastors, they're very hesitant to judge uh, fornication. They, wanna, they want to wishy-washy. Well, you know, there's, everybody's weak, you know, just, uh, well, uh, you know, and they want to make excuses. Fornication is fornication. Black, white, Chinese, Arab, Jew, doesn't matter. Fornication is fornication. And if you do not judge fornication, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 5, that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And what the Apostle Paul is writing there is, he's writing that uh, there is a violation of spirit. You have released a dimension in your congregation, and as you've released that dimension in your congregation, a spiritual pollution and corruption will be released. And it's invisible, just like uh, yeast is invisible, but will do its deadly work. When you do not judge sin, then something begins to happen in your own personality. You begin to uh, have no convictions. You're not able to, uh, then to clear cut. And remember, uh, judging of sin begins with your own heart. When you do not judge rebellion, then something begins to happen in your personality. You begin to then waffle. And I want to tell you that the sin you do not judge will catch you yourself. You do not judge fornication. You will yourself be a victim of that. If you do not judge rebellion, you will suffer that same thing in your own ministry. And God says, uh, you better rise up uh, and you better let the covenant uh, be the guiding light. Margaret Thatcher made an interesting statement. She said, standing in the middle of the road is very dangerous. You get knocked down by traffic from both sides. Maggie, Maggie Thatcher is one of the best men that England ever had. <laughs> I conclude. Joshua crosses Jordan River. He comes over the river. He sees a man standing with his sword drawn. And he says, uh, whose side are you on? You on our side? Or are you on the side of our enemies? And the man said these words, uh, Neither. I'm the captain of the Lord's host. Now the reason that he was standing there was these are the people of God and they were going into promised land and they needed divine help. He wasn't just out there standing having a picnic and as uh, Joshua came across, he said, Oh, hi there. What are you? He was there on a mission. And that mission was divine mission to bring the people of God into their dominion and into the promised land. Many people look at that and say, oh yeah, well, there is no side, you know. But I want to tell you, God does have a side. Amen. Whose side are you on? I received an email today. Certain places, a little turmoil going on. Man tried to pull a church out. Got his nuts cut off. And he's associated with another, another pastor. And this other pastor emailed me. And uh, he's complaining. A two-page, I've been in this fellowship 20 years. I've uh, planted this. I've done that. I'm, I don't care what you've done. What are you doing now? That's what I want to know. 
And he said, people are calling me. They want to know whose side I'm on. Well, why is that so difficult? A rebel is a rebel. I don't care if you're, he's your brother. Can you say amen? amen? I don't care if he was your pastor. I don't care if he's your uncle, your cousin, your banker, your landlord. I don't care if it's your father. A rebel is a rebel. Rebellion is rebellion. And why should you be alarmed that people are calling you and asking you, whose side are you on? It should be easy enough to say, I'm on the side that I've always been on which is the side of the fellowship, and I'm standing with leadership and fellowship, and that's whose side I'm on. Can you say amen? And the fact that you're not wanting to do that speaks volumes to me. It tells me whose side you're on. I want every head bowed, every eye closed. Sympathy for the devil runs in many streams and courses. This evening as we're in this auditorium and the grace of God has been here, the wonderful wooing of the Holy Spirit's touched our hearts. There are men here and some of you are not right with God. I want to tell you God loves you, cares for you, but we're in a conflict, beloved. It's life or death. We're in a conflict, it's heaven or hell. We're in a conflict, it's light or darkness. We're in a conflict, it's either.